It was May of 2011. Some of you might remember. I know I remember. I was actually riding a commuter rail train into Boston with a buddy of mine. Amanda and I were in the process of moving to the area, and a buddy of mine was up visiting. And we were riding the train in, and we saw this news blast that the world was going to end in a couple of days. Many of you might remember the name Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a fairly well-known Christian radio host who was predicting that the rapture would come on May 24th, 2011. Well, surprise, surprise, Camping was wrong. He went back and he revised the dates and fast-forwarded them to, I believe, October 6, 2011, and he was wrong again. This was actually the fifth time that Harold Camping had predicted the dates of Christ's return or of Judgment Day coming, the end of the world as we know it, and every time he was wrong. Now, I don't say this to beat up on Harold Camping. I say this to ask, what do you want to be remembered for when it comes to the end of the world? When it comes to the return of Christ, let's say it like that. Sadly, Camping, who I'm sure was a man who loved his family, who did much good in the world, sadly, he is remembered for this. If you were to look his name up in Wikipedia, even today, not right now, but even sometime today, you would see known for Mistaken end times prophecies. But you know, you can be known for something in regards to the return of Christ. May I put before you that, like camping, we should have the return of Christ at the forefront of our minds. We should not get caught up trying to predict dates or times. Rather, we should comfort and encourage one another with the hope of Christ's return. In fact, let me put before you the following that I want to present to you from this text. I want to argue from 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11, and that is that the coming return of Christ enables us to encourage one another in grief and encourage one another to not fear future judgment. Yes, how would you like to be known, not for wrong prophecies, but for encouraging one another with the return of Christ? Let me say it again. The coming return of Christ enables us to encourage one another in grief and encourage one another to not fear future judgment. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. If you're turning there in your Bibles or in the Bibles provided in the pew rack in front of you, uh, that is on page 1257. 1257. The words are also provided in the bulletin. However you get God's Word open in front of you, I encourage you to follow along now as I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. May God write the truths of his word upon our hearts. We're going to walk through this passage Just two simple steps. First, Christ's coming return is a comfort for Christians who grieve. And second, Christ's coming return is a comfort for Christians who fear future judgment. So firstly, let's see the return of Christ. Christ's coming return is a comfort for Christians who grieve. We see this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. There are few if any tragedies greater than the death of those who are dear to us. For some of us, many of us, if not all of us in this room, grief over a recent or perhaps not so recent death, this loss remains fresh in your heart. You have come to accept the fact that it will never depart. It will be with you until you, in fact, reach death. The church at Thessalonica that Paul is writing to was grieving the loss of some in their own church family. It's possible that some Christians in the church had died as a result of the severe persecution that the church was enduring, though we do not know this for certain. But regardless of how they died, these Christians that Paul is writing to, they have other Christians that they love so deeply, so dearly, and they are trapped by terrible grief over their loss. But not only are they trapped by grief over their loss, 
They're trapped by grief feeling that these Christians who have died before Christ has returned will miss out on the return of Christ. You see, it's kind of interesting as we're going to walk through this passage this morning that there's the, the church in Thessalonica was dealing with a few things that are quite opposite of how we view things in our day and age. So, for instance, they felt like they had been taught that Jesus Christ would return for His church, and they thought it would be any moment. And so they're grieving those who have passed away, feeling like, oh, they, they, they missed the boat. They're going to miss the return of Christ. Later on, Paul's going to address fears of future judgment to come. And we're not in the same boat today. Culturally, in our day and age, very few people fear any kind of future judgment. And so Paul is addressing a context that is slightly different than ours. And yet in the wisdom of God, he has stuff for us as we make our way through it. Look at verse 13. The Apostle Paul certainly believes that the Christian faith does speak to loss, and to grief. He wants the church to know the realness of Christian hope. Look at verse 13. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have, others do, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Sorry, you got to let me trip over that a little bit. See, Paul sees those around him who have no hope. They think death is a fade to black, the end, the final, but not for the Christian. Paul describes the Christian. Do you see the unique way that he describes those who have passed away? Christians who have died? Three times, once in verse 13, once in verse 14, once in verse 15, he describes them as those who are asleep. You see that in verse 13, you see that at the very end of verse 14 with those who have fallen asleep, and at the very end of verse 15, that will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, what Paul is saying is that though the death of our fellow Christians is intensely painful, it is not permanent. This language, they have fallen asleep, sure to be awakened when Christ returns. You see, here's what happens when we die. Our souls depart to enter into the presence of God. Those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, are united with the Lord in spirit in some state that we don't fully yet comprehend or understand. And yet, their bodies are not united with them. Bodies are buried or cremated. The bodies remain. They are dead, or in Paul's words, asleep. But when Christ returns, those bodies will be resurrected by the same power of God that spoke creation into existence, by the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead. The bodies of those who are in Christ who have died, they too will be raised from the dead. This is the power of the resurrection as Jesus relates to us. He was the first, but all who die before his turn, before his return, shall experience their own resurrection. I've heard it said before from an aging preacher, when asked how his health is doing, he says, I'm doing all right. Nothing a good resurrection can't fix. When I lead a graveside service after a funeral, these are my go-to words. 1 Thessalonians 4. When the chill in the air of those grieving is no match 
for the chill that has overwhelmed hearts in the midst of sorrow. I want to bring the grieving. Parents mourning the loss of children. Children mourning the loss of parents. Spouse mourning the loss of another spouse. I want to bring them here that they may not grieve without hope. Did you know that in the New Testament Greek, the word for cemetery means sleeping place or dormitory? A cemetery just across the street. It's nothing but a dormitory for the dead. A sleeping place for those who will be made alive when Christ returns. In fact, brothers and sisters, one good exercise for you, both literally and spiritually, might be this week in response to this passage to read over, to meditate over this passage, and then take a walk through a cemetery. See, it's an exercise multiple ways. Consider the shortness, the brevity of life, but also consider the promise of resurrection. It's said that somewhere in Massachusetts, um, elsewhere in our state, there is a cemetery that instead of everybody being buried in, in just lines or rows, they're buried in a circular pattern so that when they are resurrected at the return of Christ, they'll all be able to see each other and rejoice that this has happened. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, or you kind of just seem a little estranged, or not estranged, or this passage seems a little strange, excuse me, you look at things like verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You read things like that, and that just sounds odd. I think it sounds weird. You might ask that question. You might ask the question, well, what about those who are not Christians? Well, in regards to that question, I want to underscore that this speaks solely of hope that Christians have. Christians who are united with Christ. He bore the death that we deserve, therefore His resurrection is ours. This can become yours if you will come to Christ. Sin and our fallen human nature leads to death leads to destruction, but the work of Christ is one where He gives new life here and now for eternity. And this is why the resurrection has such great power to us. Our souls are born again. Our bodies anticipate resurrection. Now, in regards to the question or the objection that this just seems all so weird, I respond that the weirdness of death is something that is entirely out of place in our culture. The pandemic forced us to come to grips with death in ways that were quite uncomfortable, were they not? Many of us, in fact, probably all of us, saw the imagery of overcrowded hospitals on our TVs or computers. Some of us even lived it. Overcrowded hospitals, overwhelmed morgues having to host the deceased in refrigerated trucks. This brought death right to our face, and we do not like death, do we? You don't go to a dinner party and as you're trying to find something to have small talk with somebody new that you've met, you don't say, man, the weather was nice today, right? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. I was able to get out and get some gardening done and yeah, it was a nice day. Oh, by the way, what are your thoughts on death? 
Not a conversation starter at dinner parties, at least not the ones I go to. But the Christian, we understand that death is very much a part of our reality. And though it is terrible, we rejoice in the fact that like, it, it, it is like the moon in an eclipse. It temporarily blocks out the radiant glory of the sun, but not for long because eventually the sun will overwhelm that moon and will pass over it in glory and that blocked out darkness will lift by a radiant glory. This is our hope as Christians. Look at verses 15 to 17. Paul writes that for this, I, uh, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And now listen to the hope for those who have fallen asleep in verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a joyous hope to anticipate whether walking through cemeteries or hearing this, even in our youth. For those of you that are are more elderly saints, this is a hope to prepare yourself for. Prepare your soul. Read this and rejoice that as your body is wasting away, you don't have anything that a good resurrection cannot fix. And that a good resurrection will not fix. For us who are younger, good to be reminded of our mortality, to prepare ourselves, to know that this life is not all that there is, but that we will see Christ. Verse 17 continues on, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now there are many who believe that verses 15 to 17 argue for what has come to be understood as the rapture. You might be familiar with this term rapture. The idea that maybe you picked up from like the left behind books or other forms of media or television or some form or fashion, what this thing that Harold Camping predicted, this idea that devastation would come upon the earth as Christians just disappeared and went to heaven all instantaneously, all at once, with no forewarning. Remember the chaos of cars suddenly unoccupied on the roads, airplanes falling out of the sky because Christian pilots all of a sudden disappear, families at a dinner table, and then poof, A member or two or three of the family are gone. Just mass chaos enveloping the world. Now I want to be honest. This is the kind of thing that Christians can maturely disagree on. But I don't believe that that kind of rapture is what we see presented here in Scripture. There are Christian scholars and experts who are far more brilliant than I do, who do believe this. But I think what we see in verses 15 to 17 is something different. 
The imagery of verses 16 and 17 is symbolic. In some ways, it doesn't make sense scientifically or, or realistically. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and uh, uh, with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will, will arise. We who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so it gives us imagery of, of we will see the Lord. And I believe that we will. We will hear the cry, the shout, the trumpet sounding of the Lord's return. And we rejoice and we long for that day. But there's also imagery happening here that we don't quite know is absolutely certain as to how it will play out. Just like there's imagery throughout our Bibles that we, we see is given to us to illustrate the significance of a point, but is not steadfast, rock solid as to how, what exactly it will look like. And so here's where we get back to this idea of the rapture or the return of Christ as we see here. In contemporary times in Thessalonica, when royalty or great nobility would travel to visit a city, many of the citizens or the residents of the city or town would go line the streets to celebrate the arrival of this coming king, of this coming dignitary. And this is the same imagery and picture we see in verse 15 with the coming of the Lord Jesus in verse 15. And so, dear Christian, what I believe Paul is illustrating for us here is that by the spectacular work of God, with the sound of the return of Christ, at the, commit, at, at, the, at, the, at the sending of Christ to come back to earth, the dead in Christ will be raised to see Him. We who are still alive in Christ, we will be taken up to heaven, not in a way, I think, where we will just disappear from earth, although we might in some way, but in a way in which we will be taken up to usher Him back to earth. Do you see that in verse 17? We who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I think He will descend, as verse 16 says, from heaven. So we do not look at this as something where we will go only to the Lord but where we will go welcome Him and He will descend and establish His reign on earth. That's the imagery that we see here. And now regardless of whether or not you agree with my take or my interpretation on what we're seeing here or what we should do with the rapture or what we should not, allow me to argue that based on one more point of evidence, that this is not given to us just solely for speculation, or for debate. But regardless of interpretation as to what the return of Christ is going to look like, this is given to us. We can know why it's given to us. It's given to us for our encouragement. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, Therefore encourage one another with these words. These words are not written in, to communicate chaos in the world, but they are written to communicate comfort for Christians. These are not intended to make money off of for TV specials or book deals, but to comfort the children who are grieving the loss of a parent, to comfort church members that grieve the loss of a precious brother or sister in the faith. 
In fact, a good rule of thumb for the church is that eschatology, which is the big fancy theological word for the study of the end times, eschatology is given to us for our encouragement. So we might not know exactly how it will all play out with the return of Christ, but we can encourage one another that he will return and those who grieve the loss of of fellow Christians can take heart that the dead in Christ will not miss a thing. Now Christ's coming return is not just a comfort in the midst of our grief, but it's a comfort for Christians who fear future judgment. This is what we see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The church in Thessalonica is hearing the promise of Jesus' return, but as they heard this, they were dealing with concerns as to when uh, it would be and whether or not they were prepared for it. You see this in verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Sure, we hear regularly, hear often predictions as to when Christ will return. Some of those understandably laughed at when they're wrong. But the more time wears on from the days of Jesus' life and His ascension, the more we, one might be tempted to think, I'm not so sure He's coming back. But we should take a page from the Thessalonians here in anticipating the return of Christ. They believed that it would be soon. They were submitting, surrendering their lives under this idea, under this possibility, under this conviction as followers of King Jesus. You see in verse 3, Paul says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That mention of peace and security, you may be familiar with the, the idea or the, or the Pax Romana of the Roman Empire. It was a 200 year period of peace, of economic prosperity that the whole empire enjoyed. And Thessalonica is in the midst of it and they're lapping it up. They're saying, you can't give us any bad news. The stock market's high. Our securities are certain. We have no uh, coming wars uh, uh, that are directed in our way. We have peace and security. Nothing can shake us. This is what the Thessalonians who do not know Christ are, 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 are clinging to. And Paul writes and warns all who would hope in anything in this life Their peace and security should only be found in Christ. What this passage gives us is the truth that Jesus will return for the church, but it does not give us when the return of Jesus will be. Paul just gives illustrations that it will come like a thief in the night or like labor pains on a pregnant woman. Neither of these can be predicted. We just have the responsibility to live in a state of anticipation and preparation. So how do we do so? Well, I think we do so best by remembering where our peace and security lies. It rests not in any government that is over us. No Roman empire can provide the security and peace that Christ offers. 
No government might can calm our fears and anxieties. You know what's dawned on me in regards to our hearts, our actions, whether we agree or we disagree with our government, our government can serve for the sake of our sanctification in the ways in which it displeases us. Let me say that again. Our government can serve for the sake of our sanctification in the ways in which it displeases us. Think of it. You and I basically have very little to no voice in regards to policy, legislation, executive orders, you name it. We can pray. That is, a, that is a ample voice. But we do not walk the halls of power in Washington. We do not uh, uh, have the ability to swing the levers of, of control. But what we can do when our government displeases us, and I think it's safe to say that regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, and let's say the last six or eight years, you have been sufficiently displeased by your government. Notice I take when Republicans and Democrats are in the control, so everybody can have something to be disappointed about. Do you recognize the failures, the injustices even, the wrongs of those who are in power over us can serve for the sake of our souls if they disabuse us of any notions that peace and security is found apart from Christ? Allow your disenchantment with those who are in power over us to be a thorn in your side that points you to the all-sufficiency of Christ. And allow your enchantment when all is going well as you believe it, when your party is in control, when good legislation is being passed, allow this to be a warning for you. To not say peace and security, all is well. But regardless, to say and to know that our hope rests in the return of Christ. In these verses, we see two illustrations. A burglar coming upon an unsuspecting home and labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. Both of these are sudden and they are quick. But they help us to understand what Paul is communicating about the return of Christ. Burglary is unexpected. Labor pains, they're generally expected. A woman nearing the end of a pregnancy knows that labor pains are coming. She just does not know when. Therefore, the way these illustrations serve for our understanding of the return of Christ is they help us to know that Christ's return will be, if we think of a burglar coming upon a house, it will be sudden and unexpected. And labor pains, for those of you women in our church family who have given birth, you, are, you know that they are sudden and they are unavoidable. You can't pop a Tylenol and get rid of those, or so I hear. So we do not know when the return of our Lord Jesus Christ will be, but we can know whether or not we are prepared for it. How do we prepare? We prepare with vigilant hearts set upon Christ. Look at verses 4 to 7. Paul gives this illustration of light and darkness. He says, verse 4, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, 
let me pause here. We, we think of this and we think, well, what, what's wrong with darkness? You know, I, I, we're entering into months, in a few months now, where it's going to be dark a lot of the time. Well, think about it in, back in, let's say, 2,000 years ago when there wasn't electricity. Lighting homes, lighting buildings, putting big neon lights up, street lights that line the, line the road. No, darkness was a scary time. Threats and dangers abound. And so Paul says, no, we're not in darkness. We're in light. And this propels us towards an understanding of the Christian life. Those who are not in Christ walk in darkness, and those who are in Christ, they're ones who have come out of darkness and into the light. This illustration combined with what we see in verses uh, uh, 5 and 6 and 7 and describing those who are, get, are, are drunk and are not sober, these, these combine to, to bring us this overall illustration of those who lack awareness of what is to come. They are ones who have a flippancy about what lays, lie ahead as they go about their business with no account, no consideration of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. And is this not the boat that our world finds itself in today? No consideration to Christ. We make our economic prognostications. Are we entering a recession? Are we not? What's the future with inflation? What's the future with the market? We all try to wish we could predict the future. Whether in economics, in sports, in global calamity. We all want to know the future, and yet the most important thing any of us can know the future, about the future is, is our state before God, our state before the returning of Christ, and we show little regard for it. If this is you, I urge you to give careful consideration to the return of Christ and what this means for you. I think one reason we show little regard for it is that in our day and age, we assume that everyone goes to heaven. Here, Paul's addressing a people who are worried the return of Christ, we might, not, we might get squelched. We might get squished in His judgment. But in our day and age, we don't talk in that way, do we? In our day and age, we, we, we consider ourselves, uh, uh, we, we, we think we go to this place of just, of, of just peace. Everybody gets in. We're going to golf, we're going to fish. We're going to take long walks on the beach. We're going to enjoy the presence of loved ones and of company and of, 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 of never having to go to work and, and just the weather's always going to be great. And you imagine all these things and we even talk of loved ones who are looking down upon us. I've never understood the language of, of, of loved ones looking down upon us. I'm not trying to mock it, but, but when I consider it, I think there are times I wouldn't want my loved ones looking down upon me. Our loved ones looking down on us when we catch Super Bowl winning touchdowns, but they don't look down on us whenever we get caught up in grotesque, ugly sin. But all that aside, that's not even, that's not even in my notes. Forget that. But, but we, we get all these pictures of what we think heaven is, what we think heaven should be. And then we ultimately start to think about everything that's there and everyone that's there. And then we start to realize, I feel like something's missing. God, our culture, our world, and even us, we can fall into an idea where we envision all these things about heaven that sound so lovely, and none of us, and if we're not careful, excuse me, we can realize that none of it includes the presence of God. 
And so the danger is for this sentimentalism, this nebulous spirituality that denies there's a coming day of the Lord. And so for the one that is in that boat, tomorrow marks 17 years since Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. I know I've shared this illustration before, but it illustrates this point so clearly. I was in college down that way at that time. Saturday night before Katrina hit early on a Monday morning, I was hanging out with some friends and amongst them was a, a roommate of mine, born and raised in New Orleans. I don't know if you've ever met anyone from New Orleans, but they're a specific breed. This roommate's name is Chris Costanza. Picture a Chris Costanza, that's what he is. A wild one. We used to have birthday parties for him every fall, the Costanza extravaganza, but that's not in the notes either, so I'm going to keep on going. Chris and I, for reasons unbeknownst to me, we're hanging out in this backyard, and I remember we're kind of laying on a hammock, just chilling and talking, and, and other people are milling about, and like my head's here, his head's there, and our feet are kind of by each other, and we're just laughing and messing around, and anyway, uh, this girl that Chris was interested in, and he wanted to play it cool with her. Her name's Katie. Katie walks up, and she's all worried about the hurricane. Uh, Chris, the exact opposite. Katie's saying, Chris, don't you think we should leave? Don't you think we should, you know, go make sure everything's okay? Don't you think this is? And Chris goes, Katie, Katie, Katie. Hurricanes are child's play. There's nothing to worry about. 36 hours later, Chris's family home in New Orleans was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. Thankfully, his family and loved ones had a little more sensibility than he did at the time, and they were okay. How many people, how many of us perhaps even walk around thinking the return of Christ, thinking possible judgment to come, these four and backwards terms, they're nothing but child's play. If this is you, don't consider my words. Look at God's word. Now, I talked about there are some who are so caught up in a sentimentality of, oh, heaven will be this, heaven will be this, heaven will be gathering around with loved ones, heaven, heaven will be all these things, and everybody gets in, and it's just perfect. And then that's wrong. There's these Christians in Thessalonica who are worried, are any of us going to make it? Who can, who can stand in the midst of the storm of the wrath of God that is coming on this day of the Lord? Well, Paul's telling the church in Thessalonica, you're wrong too. So taking it too easy, taking it too hard. Look at what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. Look at what he says is the key for us understanding the return of Christ being well positioned for it, being prepared for it, even expecting it and longing for it and yearning for it and praying for it to come. Paul says in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether you're alive or dead, we might live with him. Do you see that? Do you see that? See the connection to the death of Christ. Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica, you don't have to worry 
about that day of the Lord, about the return of Christ. Because do you know who it is that's coming back? It's the one who came to die for you. And if you are united with him in his death, you will stand with him in his life. There's something else wonderful to see in this whole passage. Paul says in verse 10, right, that, 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 that they can hope because of his cross, his death. But back in chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, he doesn't appeal to the death of Christ. He appeals to what? The resurrection of Christ as our hope. That those who are fallen asleep will be made alive. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is the wonder of the gospel. It triangulates us between the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the coming return of Christ, and anchors our hope and sets our eyes on the total sufficiency of Christ in all things for our hearts to be secure in Him, for our lives, our futures, our eternities to be grounded in Him, and for us to live in this life with supreme confidence that He will return. And what do we do about it? In our grief, we comfort and encourage one another. Chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. And in our fear of future judgment, as conviction and weight of sin washes over us, and we think he's coming back, but I'm not going to make it. We take the Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And then we do verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You might not have a radio show where you're known for predictions that are sadly wrong about the return of Christ. But brothers and sisters, each one of us in this church family can and are instructed to have a ministry of encouraging one another with the return of Christ. We lift one another up and we say he's coming and he's coming soon. Oh, that we need to hear that when we grieve. We lift one another up and we say he's coming and he's coming soon. Oh, that we need to hear that when we are drowned out in our sin. Because the he that's coming is he who died for. And he who is resurrected. And so in this life. We encourage one another. As verse 8 says. We put on faith and love and hope. The coming return of Christ enables us to encourage one another in grief. And encourage one another. To not fear future judgment. Brothers and sisters, 
May we be encouraged in Christ and in his return. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this ministry of encouragement that we have to one another. This ministry of encouragement grounded in the return of Christ. For my brother or sister in this room who feels perhaps they are not ready, help them to look not at all they need to get done before the return of Christ, but look at what Christ has done and anchor their heart and hope in his cross. For my brother or sister in Christ here who grieves the loss of a Christian who has gone before them, Help them to know that not in some cheesy, sentimental way will we see them again, but in a glorious, Christ-exalting way, we will be brought together to welcome Christ to his eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Help us to encourage one another with this truth, O God, by your Spirit's work within us. We pray and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.